Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, we're on the other side of what I call Resurrection Weekend, aren't we? The annual celebration has passed, but is the living now over? In other words, have we been propelled by this celebration to now live out the resurrected life? Friends, I propose that living out the resurrection life must start with a consciousness that the road to the resurrection of our Redeemer is paved with paradoxes, divine paradoxes that we can very easily miss or glide right past when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. If we've been resurrected to new life, as the scriptures tell us, we'll need to clearly differentiate between the mindset of this new life and the mindset of the old life. And I'll define paradox for us shortly, but we'll see the practical outcome of this paradox through the writings of a classic Christian author, A.W. Tozer. In the early 1960s, Tozer became the editor of a publication called The Alliance Witness and wrote a series of editorials, his goal being to instruct the heart that seeks to follow on to know the Lord. In 1964, these editorials were compiled and published in a book that became a Christian classic called That Incredible Christian. Anita Bailey, then managing editor, said this in part in her introduction. Someone said that while Dr. A.W. Tozer always sought to introduce sinners to their Savior, he longed to help saints to see the greatness of God and to experience the life of victory and joy through surrender and faith. Such a life may not be always easy, but at the last it will be all that really matters. Well, friends, in that spirit, I'm honored to share with you an excerpt from that incredible Christian. My hope is that today, in part one of this new series, we'll see that the road to the resurrection of our Redeemer is paved with divine paradoxes, paradoxes we must come to understand and be willing to embrace if we're to see the greatness of God and experience the life of victory and joy through surrender and faith. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? 
Now to the word paradox. While not found in the Bible, the concept surely is, and friends will discover that these paradoxes are actually calls to surrender our baser self or our lower life. In other words, the soul life, as our New Testament describes it. So today's part one is called Divine Paradox Number One, Greatness God's Way. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, to the 5,000 who were just fed, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, and this word is suke life or soul life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, same word, for my sake, he is the one who will save it. By the way, friends, suke is where we get our English word psych or psyche, and words like psychiatry, psychology, etc. These particular disciplines delve into the realm of and behavior of the human soul, the seat of our emotions. Friends, one function of the cross is to put to death or crucify our suke life and thereby put a lot of space between us and that old life and its habit patterns. Now, the other side of the coin is Christ's resurrection, which infuses us with Zoe life, or the higher life, salvation life, if you will. In other words, the life that brings not only duration, you know, everlasting life, but also dimension. In other words, a whole new dimension to our lives. Living for the suke life always takes away from and endangers the Zoe life, our salvation life. You see, friends, Zoe life is that road with divine paradoxes, paradoxes that we must come to understand and be willing to embrace. Perhaps now is a good time to define a paradox. It's a seemingly contradictory statement, proposal, or event that, when investigated further, turns out to be well-founded or even true. So, with that backstory, I'm honored to introduce Dr. A.W. Tozer, who wrote these inspiring insights. At the heart of the Christian system lies the cross of Christ with its divine paradox. The power of Christianity appears in its antipathy. And by that, Tozer means its aversion or opposition to. So he says, its antipathy toward, never in agreement with, the ways of fallen man. The truth of the cross is revealed in its contradictions. The cross stands in bold opposition to the natural man. Its philosophy runs contrary to the processes of the unregenerate mind, so that Paul could say bluntly that the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. To try to find common ground between the message of the cross and man's fallen reason is to try the impossible, and if persisted in, must result in an impaired reason, a meaningless cross, and powerless Christianity. But let us observe the true Christian as he puts into practice the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Note the contradictions. The Christian believes that in Christ he has died, yet he is more alive than before, and he fully expects to live forever. He walks on earth while seated in heaven, and though born on earth, he finds that after his conversion, he is not at home here. Like the night hawk, which in the air is the essence of grace and beauty, 
but on the ground is awkward and ugly. So the Christian appears at his best in the heavenly places, but does not fit well into the ways of the society into which he was born. The Christian soon learns that if he would be victorious as a son of heaven among men on earth, he must not follow the common pattern of mankind, but rather the contrary. That he may be safe, he puts himself in jeopardy. He loses his life to save it, and is in danger of losing it if he attempts to preserve it. He goes down to get up. If he refuses to go down, he's already down. But when he starts down, he's on his way up. He is strongest when he is weakest, and weakest when he is strong. Though poor, he has the power to make others rich. But when he becomes rich, his ability to enrich others vanishes. He has most after he has given most away, and has least when he possesses most. He may be and often is highest when he feels lowest, and most sinless when he is most conscious of sin. He is wisest when he knows that he knows not and knows least when he has acquired the greatest amount of knowledge. He sometimes does most by doing nothing, and goes furthest by standing still. In heaviness he manages to rejoice and keep his heart even in sorrow. The paradoxical character of the Christian life is revealed constantly. For instance, the Christian believes that he is saved now. Nevertheless, he expects to be saved later, and looks forward joyfully to future salvation. He fears God, but isn't afraid of Him. In God's presence he feels overwhelmed and undone, yet there is nowhere he would rather be than in that presence. He knows that he has been cleansed from his sin, yet he is painfully conscious that in his flesh dwells no good thing. He feels that he is in his own right altogether less than nothing, yet he believes without question that he is the apple of God's eye, and that for him the eternal Son became flesh and died on the cross of shame. The Christian is a citizen of heaven, and to that sacred citizenship he acknowledges first allegiance. Yet he may love his earthly country with that intensity of devotion that caused John Knox to pray, O oh God, give me Scotland or I die. He cheerfully expects before long to enter that bright world above, but he is in no hurry to leave this world, and is quite willing to await the summons of his heavenly Father. And he is unable to understand why the critical unbeliever should condemn him for this. It all seems so natural and right in the circumstances that he sees nothing inconsistent about it. The cross-carrying Christian, furthermore, is both a confirmed pessimist and an optimist, the like of which is to be found nowhere else on earth. When he looks at the cross, he's a pessimist, for he knows that the same judgment that fell on the Lord of glory condemns in that one act all nature and all the world of men. He rejects even hope outside of Christ because he knows that man's noblest effort is only dust building on dust." Yet he is calmly, restfully optimistic. If the cross condemns the world, the resurrection of Christ guarantees the ultimate triumph of good throughout the universe. Through Christ all will be well at last, and the Christian awaits that consummation. Incredible Christian! Well, friends, I have no doubt we can relate to these insights by Tozer and even find some humor in them as well as we think of our own life stories and feelings 
Technically, friends, we're now in the season of the resurrection, and so we don't relegate our glorious resurrection weekend celebration to just a few days. I've crafted this series to journey back onto that road that led to the resurrection of our Redeemer, Jesus. Because, friends, this road is where we'll discover these key divine paradoxes of the Christian life, and we'll come face to face with the hard truth that the principles of God's kingdom conflict with the principles of this world. You see, the road Christ followers travel down differs greatly with the road world followers travel. Our identification with Christ and His way, in other words, His road, is what makes that difference. So, as I mentioned earlier, friends, today we'll look at greatness God's way, and our jumping-off point will be Matthew 18, 1 through 4. Chronologically, we're probably about three weeks before the crucifixion, and about two weeks before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we now call and celebrate as Palm Sunday. Well, Jesus doesn't have much time to reinforce and instill into his followers' minds the divine paradoxes of the kingdom of God contrasting heaven's value system with the world's value system. And for this series, I've chosen four particular paradoxes that appear between Matthew 18 and Matthew 21, where Matthew 21 signals Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So, our first paradox is recorded in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, for the backstory here, my take is that at that time may be tipping us off to some previous events beginning in chapter 17, the Transfiguration. Jesus is healing a demon-possessed boy, predicting his death a second time, and the temple tax incident where Jesus solicits Peter to take a coin out of a fish's mouth. Matthew continues, He, Jesus, called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the position of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Friends, I suspect that Jesus calling a young child himself prods the disciples to think back to his healing of that demon-possessed boy. I'm guessing here, but perhaps they both were in the same age bracket. Why did Jesus choose a young child as his object lesson, as his paradox, if you will? Notice how he contrasts the kingdom of God's mindset and the world's mindset. And here we'll need to familiarize ourselves with the cultural environment in the first century Greco-Roman world, and particularly the position or status of children there. In general, children were typically seen as without power, without economic resources, lacking self-sufficiency, having no measurable influence, and totally dependent on others. In this first century society, children occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder. They were virtually insignificant. They, could, they couldn't bestow honor or power and didn't have pride in a position since they had no position in the community. In a sense, we could say that children were considered the least important members of society. Can we see now why Jesus chose a child to teach a lesson about humility? Notice, friends, in spite of the fact that children were typically cast in a negative light, 
Jesus calls attention to positive and innocent qualities of children. For Jesus, children are innocent, humble, unpretentious, teachable, and willing to trust their parents, and particularly in that culture, their father. So here Jesus was teaching his disciples greatness God's way. In God the Father's eyes, greatness is rooted in the exact opposite trait the world exalted. We might wonder, friends, why this issue even came up. Well, it so happens that three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each record this incident of becoming like a little child. And curiously, just a few chapters ahead, in Matthew 20, another incident occurs that is likely close to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that's recorded in chapter 21. You remember this story? A mother comes to Jesus and requests if one of her two sons can sit on Jesus' right and the other son on his left in his kingdom. During Jesus' reply to her, he asks the sons, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. I think Jesus meant the cup of suffering or even the cup of death. Jesus then adds, You will indeed drink from my cup. He then tells them only the Father decides who sits on his right and left. Well, let's pause here a moment, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I want you to know how valuable you are as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is fully listener-supported. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which disciples many Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support support details at a word from the word at minister.com we'll repeat this info at the end of the program well friends matthew also records jesus's ongoing conversation with his disciples because they got indignant with the two sons reply jesus says you know that the rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you instead Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You see, the resurrection life is the instead life. Ah, notice Jesus points to the root of the issue, the disciples' preoccupation with greatness and rank. Friends, remember the disciples, like all Jews in the Roman Empire, eagerly anticipated the overthrowing of the hated Roman government and longed for the establishment of their own messianic kingdom. They were salivating for their Messiah to restore justice and peace. They couldn't wait to get out from under Rome's oppressive hand. Remember now, their term Messiah had come to be charged with political and military overtones. During these last weeks of Jesus' life and ministry, his followers could taste the coming messianic revolt. Finally, they'd come into their own power, their own rulership. But imagine their dismay when Jesus said, Greatness comes from humility, from servanthood, being a slave no less, becoming last in that society, becoming like a child? See, friends, the road to greatness God's way must be traveled with humility and servanthood. 
The argument over who would be the greatest in God's kingdom ran counter to everything Jesus stood for. The paradox here is that true greatness is measured by how we serve others. It's almost funny that Jesus demonstrated this by showing care for a child so his disciples would understand what mattered most. This lesson translates for us in the here and now by considering a couple of questions. Do we show partiality in our service to others? Do we crave positions of influence so we can merely climb the social ladder, the ladder of success, or even the church ladder? Friends, greatness God's way per kingdom values is about the inner life. And that inner life manifesting itself outwardly by a spirit of humility, a desire to serve both God and our fellow humans. On top of that, it must include a willingness to be seen as least in God's kingdom. God's kingdom greatness is not position, office, leadership, power, influence, fame, ability, great accomplishments, or success. You see, it's not so much what we do for God as what we are in spirit before him. So for us Christians, greatness God's way assumes we'll become great in the right areas, faith, humility, godly character, wisdom, self-control, patience, and love. First and foremost, true greatness is unreserved love for and commitment to the Lord Jesus and being faithful wherever he chooses to place us. My take on these petty squabbles of the disciples over who's the greatest just reveals that they're all, they are more thought Jesus came to establish an earthly kingdom where they would enjoy positions of power and also that they view their discipleship as a means to attaining their own inspirations. But friends, just like Jesus' disciples, we too must learn that service in God's kingdom is unique. Greatness in God's kingdom is measured differently than any other human organization. Jesus established no position of authority for one person to lord it over others in the kingdom of God, and even now in the body of Christ. Greatness God's way and in God's kingdom is defined by assuming the role of a servant. The role model for ministry in the church, even today, is the one who came as the suffering servant. Domination and exercising positional authority stem from the value system of the world. Church leaders should not be climbing ambitiously to places of prominence or position, Leaders are to serve with the same spirit of humility as their Lord Jesus, who himself said, Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, and who gave his life to and for others. Friends, leaders in the church are to exercise their function, not the power of their office. Authority in the church is not to become an end in itself, as it has sometimes sadly become. Church leaders are church servants. Well, the last incident I'll share today occurs immediately following the Passover observance, the Last Supper. It's recorded in Luke 22. Please read the whole chapter on your own, as I'll touch on one portion. Suffice it to say here that even at this very emotional final Passover observance with Jesus, his disciples again fell prey to their old habit of worrying about rank and status. One verse here will do the trick. 
right after Jesus takes the cup and says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Luke records in 22:23 that a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Do you believe this? You see, friends, we must put on first century sandals and realize that in the Greco-Roman world, humility was a scandalous virtue. A humble person was a slave, a servile, groveling, wretched individual. So it's pretty amazing that these very disciples, particularly those who wrote the New Testament letters, instructed the fledgling church to cultivate humility, and that humility was not optional for Christ followers. It was essential. A biblical way of life knows nothing about looking out for number one. It's actually the opposite, isn't it? This paradox is reinforced by John the Baptist, who said, he must increase and I must decrease. John 3.30. In other words, he must become greater and I must become less, as one translation says. Friends, it's a great day for us Christians when we realize life is one of downward mobility, not upward mobility. Yes, friends, we actually descend into greatness because this is greatness God's way. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see we're nearing the end of today's program. I hope it's been both edifying as well as challenging, and my prayer is that we all will grow in humility and practice being servants in God's kingdom. The Apostle Peter said it best in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may exalt you at the proper time. As promised earlier, today's program will also be closing with an email address where you may write me and inquire about how to financially support A Word from the Word, a listener-supported program. I love coming alongside those of you without a church home or those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts, then scroll to A Word from the Word. Podcasts can also be accessed on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, a word from the word is broadcast to over 70 countries. Friends, please consider investing in the mission of a word from the word in 2023. It's listeners like you that help keep this program on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.